Acts chapter 13. We'll be finishing the chapter here. Verse number 42. 42 down through the end of the chapter here this morning. It says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you, but seeing you, you, ye put it from you, now get this, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that they should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stood up devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples, those remaining back, were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I ask your blessing upon the word this morning. Lord, I pray for your mercy, your grace, and your help. Lord, I pray that your word would feed your sheep. I pray it would be help to them, that it would strengthen, that it would draw them closer to you. Lord, you know all the needs that are in this room. Lord, you know exactly what needs to be spoken and how it needs to be spoken. Help me to be simply yielded to you and to stay true to your word. So, Father, please bless. I pray to be glorified and honored. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, as we left off, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch of Pisidia. He has just finished preaching. This is all, again, part of the first missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Barnabas setting out. They're being sent out of the church of Antioch in Syria. They head over to Cyprus with John Mark. And, and we saw all that happened there. They traveled that island. The governor himself gets converted once they had the battle with the demonically possessed sorcerer, the counselor of the governor of the island. And then they headed to the mainland. Once there, they traveled up by a treacherous journey to Antioch of Pisidia. And as Paul's custom was, he has right to the synagogue and he preaches. Antioch of Pisidia was known to have a very large population of Jews. The administrative center for Galatia, that's the name of the region that it's in. And Paul preaches, and when he enters the synagogue, he's asked to preach. We've looked at the sermon the past couple of weeks. He gave them first um, a reason to listen to him. And then he gave them a reason to believe. His whole purpose was to get to who Jesus Christ was. They needed to know that. They need to understand, those Jews in that synagogue, that the Messiah has been here. So he lays out, he, he goes through their past 
to give them a reason to listen to him. He lays it out, everything pointing to the Messiah. He concludes that, uh, making the statement that the Messiah is, in fact, Jesus Christ. From there, though, he has to give them a reason to believe him. There he goes to prophecy. He used the Old Testament, he used biblical prophecy to give them a reason to believe that, in fact, it was Jesus Christ. How it was prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would in fact be rejected, that he'd be crucified, and that he'd have to raise again from the dead. So he has them, but, but still, this is not what they expected of the Messiah. The question is going to be, okay, we hear you, we can see now what you're showing us in Scripture. It's there. But if he's the Messiah, then what did he do? And that's where we concluded last week, where he showed he was the propitiation. It wasn't that he was coming now to establish an earthly kingdom. He was coming for a much greater reason, and that was for the forgiveness of sins. They all understood that every year they had the high priest go in the holiest of holies with that perfect lamb, that perfect male lamb that would simply cover their sins for years. And he is letting them know, listen, that's all done. The Messiah was, in fact, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, not just to cover it up. That the Messiah is not only our Lamb, but He is our High Priest. So He makes that case. And now what we're coming to today is the response to all of this. One thing the Gospel always does, and we're going to see that today, it causes a response one way or another. It's rarely do you see somebody that's just neutral. Every time some response take, takes place, usually it's in the form of joy or it's in the form of anger. And the disciples, since this all began, were no stranger to strong response to the gospel. They were no stranger to persecution that would take place. They would see multitudes saved and face heavy persecution whenever the gospel was preached. Usually, by the way, we see throughout the entire book of Acts, I was going to lay it out, but I don't have time for that. We'll see it as we go through. Usually the persecution always took place by the hands of their own countrymen, the Jews. This started right after the day of Pentecost. Persecution hit, beaten and threatened, faced bitter opposition. Judea, Samaria, you, you see the same thing. The response, some coming to know Christ and other persecution. Because everywhere the gospel goes, it really turns the place upside down. It does. We're going to see that here in our text. You're going to have the whole city, the whole city coming out to here. There's a response to the gospel. I remember, I, I can relate it in my own life, as different images coming to mind as I was studying this, and the response I seen, one of the most difficult responses I had was witnessing to my own grandfather. He was a proud man, very successful. I had never witnessed it to him, and I began praying about the opportunity to witness him. I went to my pastor for counsel. I was, I was 21 at the time, I believe, 21 years old at the time. And he was Catholic. He was not at all thrilled that I was a Baptist. Not at all. When I was the first one converted in my family. I went to my pastor and said, should I write a letter? Should I call? And, and I was in the middle still praying about it. I mean, this is within a two-week time frame. And he calls me up. It's the first time he's called me since I've been married in the last two years. He calls me up and he says, I'm in town. I'll take you out to dinner. They flew in. He was a pilot. and uh, Just a private pilot. He said, he, he flew into El Paso. And he said, hey, I'll, I'll come take you out to dinner. And so uh, I, I, we went out to dinner, we got back, and I knew the Lord gave this opportunity to witness to him. So we get back to our house there on base, I was at Holloman Air Force Base, and I go through the gospel with him. He was stoic, this stone look on his face, wasn't making it any, any easier at all. I remember I finished, and he looked at me and said, are you done? I said, I am. And he got up and left. Not another word. Not a goodbye, 
Oh, and that hurt. I want his admiration. I want his respect. I mean, you, you go back, if you go back down to the Cleveland area, you'll find an entire park named after him, a governed park right now. But I also have other responses, too. I know of others. I can think of that, that man at the Books a Million bookstore who, who, when I got into the gospel and you saw it click in tears just coming down his face as he rejoiced when he heard the gospel. I can think of that truck driver at the time I was still in the Air Force and I, I was off. I got called in. Somebody else had gotten sick. I get called in. They had some, we had some more fuel coming in. And, and I'm sitting there with this truck driver who was from Texas. And he's cussing everything else. I get into the gospel with him, and I'm getting near the end of it. I could not see his eyes. He had on these dark sunglasses. He's an older guy, heavy set. And I, I really didn't think he was listening at all. I could not read him. But as I'm near the end, I see tears streaming down his face all of a sudden. I'm like, he's listening. And right there, he put his faith in Christ. And then he told me about his son who was in a Bible college somewhere, he said, in the Carolinas. He said, he always talked to me about this. And... Watching him rejoice. I remember my next door neighbor when I moved right over here on Ivan Drive back when the church was in the warehouse. I went over to my next door neighbor to talk with him. We were brand new, just getting to know my neighbor. Went over there, invited him to church and whatnot. Whew, nothing but ink. Literally cussed me out. I was like to have that for the very first time you meet your neighbor. The fact is, the gospel always causes a response. Did not Christ say it would cause division? I come not for peace, but, but a sword. It causes a response. I can think of the different response. I'm not going to throw all the NPNG. There was multitudes of them. From the United Church pastor who simply with tears put his faith in Christ. To others who I've witnessed to in the same position. Nothing but anger wanting to fight. So in our text, we have the gospel is traveling and it's causing response. We see two responses here that we're going to look at within our text. We're going to see conviction and we're going to see conflict. First off, we're going to look at the conviction that it causes. Verses 42 through 44. And when the Jews were going out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath they came almost the whole city uh, together to hear the word of God. So here, Paul has just finished preaching is where we pick up here. We cover a week's worth of events. And at first, the response we see is very positive. They want to hear more. I mean, uh, one of the greatest compliments a preacher can get is to say, come back. We want this again. We want to hear more. But you know conflict's coming. I don't know if my, my kids remember this. I was preaching at a funeral. We had, we, there, was a, there was a young lady, she was about 20 years old. She was in the back of a truck in PNG, and she was up by caving where the road was paved, was sealed. And the truck was going about 50 miles an hour. She was leaning against the back. It popped open. She fell out, was killed. And she was from a village about 20 minutes from me. And the village, some of the men from the village came to me. I had no church or anything like that. But they came to me and they asked if I would preach the funeral. I would always preach funerals because at a funeral in New Guinea, the entire village comes. Nobody stays back. It's a village event. So I said, yes, I'll come. And so it was the day of the funerals. It actually takes several days. The last day when they do put the body in the ground... That will be the day of the preaching. And usually you preach twice, much like here. You'll have one main service for the whole village, and then I'll speak again as we're putting the body into the ground. 
And so I preached and the entire village is there. And we were seeing response and, 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 and sure enough, they came to me afterwards. It had ended that day. I think we had two put their faith in Christ. They came afterwards. Came to my house afterwards that week. Then they came back and said, now the funeral's over. They said, would you come back and preach again? And I said, yes. And I went back to preach again. But this time, just like here, it's amazing how the same pattern follows. Now conflict hit. The religious leaders in that community, weren't having it. The conflict began immediately. The gospel always causes a response. This shows us though how effective Paul was with the word of God. The fact was, he was an excellent teacher and preacher of the word of God. When he preached, he had their attention. They wanted more. They were hearing what he, what, what he said. They were beginning to understand and they wanted to hear more. That always makes a difference. You can think back in your own life. Like I said, I think I've given this example before. The, 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 the course I hated most in high school, which is obvious if you listen to me, is English. But really, I, I can think back to the horrible English teachers I had. I think in my freshman year, um, my sophomore year, you could hardly hear her speak. Mrs. Whitmore. What? I don't even hear you. Couldn't stand the class. Then senior year, I still remember my schedule came out. I wouldn't get it right the week before school started. And I was like, no, no, no. I had Mrs. Zaney for English. The toughest on the term papers, the toughest teacher in the school that was known was Mrs. Zaney. She's the one I told you where it looked like Beaker. I'm not kidding. She did. And I was like, no. But it became my favorite class. When you got in there, man, could she teach. I mean, she actually made English interesting. You couldn't wait for her class. Paul's the same. When they're hearing Paul, man, they can see him expound on the Word of God and they want it. Please come back. We want more. Right now, there's no conflict. Right now, the opposition isn't there. They said, please come back. Word began to spread. Many wanted to hear what this preacher had to say. Many times, when that conviction begins to start on a heart, it leads to a curiosity. Your heart is pricked. You want to know why. What is this about? You've never had something quite grab your attention or your heart like this. You know there's something to it. When I was, when I was at Elmendorf Air Force Base, shortly before I got was the last, I went through two different chiefs there. Chief Colvin was the first one, and then the second one, actually his name is escaping me right now, and I was in the accounting side of the house for fuels at, at this point. So my office was just outside of the chief's office. And from time to time, I, I don't know, I don't remember how many times, maybe three times altogether. He knew I was an assistant pastor here at this church. He would call me in. He had heard me say it before in groups. He'd call me in, shut the door, sit down. Do the gospel again. Let me hear it. And he'd sit there and listen. All right, Go. I'd go, maybe five months later, a year later, call me in, come back in, tell me again. Let me hear it again. And he'd listen. That conviction, that pricking, he knew there was something there. It was generating a curiosity even at this point. And it's important where you go with it at that point. Because we're going to see two different directions here completely take place. For some, that conviction does, in fact, lead to conversion. We see that here in this chapter. 
Look at verse 43. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So we have some here by this verse that have, in fact, converted by this time. The proselytes would be Gentiles who fully converted to Judaism, that being established by circumcision. And so he says there's many of those who did, in fact, convert. Their conviction from the preaching led them to convert. And that certainly happens. There are those who always will be converted when the gospel is preached. Be effective with it. Preach it. And then you see it's evidence here because they want to stay with Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Please don't tell me you're converted if you make a profession of faith and you have no desire for the word of God. You were not converted. That's not conversion. It's not. You might have prayed a prayer. But that's not conversion. With conversion comes... You're not super Christian. You don't have knowledge. But now you desire God. I mean, how could you not? One, God literally moves in. The Holy Spirit indwells you. seals you into the day of redemption. But now you have knowledge of the tremendous sacrifice that God did in order to save you. How could you just disregard it then by slapping Him in the face? Makes no sense whatsoever. We got into this one, two, three, pray a prayer nonsense, and we saw thousands and thousands saved every year with no growth. But they have the evidence. They want to be with Paul and Barnabas. They want more. He tells them, and this is important for them, to continue in the grace of God. These men here and ladies are converted from Judaism. What have they been under? The law. They've been under the law. Paul's fear was this. They've just heard the gospel. They have made a profession of faith in Christ. He doesn't want them thinking, i got to go back. He says, no, no, you need to continue in grace now. You need to continue in grace, continue in grace. Think how you got saved. I mean, look what he told them in verse 39. And by him, this is back in his sermon, and by him, all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said, understand what's taking place now in your life. Through grace, what has happened to you is something the law could never do. I mean, the Bible does say, uh, from which you could never be justified by the law. It's not grace. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, excuse me, it's grace, it's not law. Don't go back to it. Don't go backwards into Judaism. Don't go backwards into this tradition. Because he knows the pressure is going to come. What region are we in here? I mentioned it this morning. Every week I mentioned it. What region of the world is Paul in right now? What province? Galatia. Turn over. Let's see what happens to him. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. You can see why as you're coming through the Word of God, and when you're in a text like that, we're having an understanding of where it's even located geographically can help you. Because as you're going through that, you see Paul's statement, and you know this is one of the churches in Galatia. And then you think of what the book of Galatians is about. Let's look what happens. Chapter 5. 
Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's basically repeating the statement in, in a much clearer fashion. Continue in grace. Because they haven't been doing that. Look what it says. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Judaizers had come into the churches. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For if we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. This, and then this is convicting to him. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. You know what happened? Judaizers come in and they started to leave grace. They started to believe that salvation was in fact in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They weren't denying that. But here's where they left the gospel. They added something to it. The Judaizers came and said, well, that's not quite enough. You also need, and they threw in different rites of the law. That's done all the time today. Oh yes, Christ died for us since he was buried and resurrected. We don't deny that, but that's not enough. You have now left grace and you are falling away and you are following a path which the Bible is clear that no man can be justified by. Salvation is in Christ alone. <clears throat> Salvation is all of grace. It's not of works. It's not received or maintained by works. And then we see what begins to take place back in Acts chapter 13. He encourages them to continue. One week later, verse 44, and the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Word spread. This isn't a small little village he's in right now. Keep that in mind. This isn't that tiny. And this entire city hears about this man that is preaching. The curiosity is there. They show up. Paul would be thrilled. He's like, look at this. Look what's taking place. By the way, think here for a second with me. Think of the potential that is in this service of how it can change that entire city like that. This is the key. Do you understand that? This this is what was turning the world upside down. I'm telling you, we missed that. This is the key. The entire town comes out. World traveled fast. All these Gentiles show up. It has to be just incredible. But as Paul's getting ready to find out, a big battle is getting ready to start. Conflict is coming. Which brings us to our second point, the conflict. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. 
Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it, uh, uh, put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And then, let me stop there, we'll continue with the others. Let's look at this. The Jews that were present, mainly the leadership there in the synagogue, all of a sudden they see the enormous crowd that is there. All these Gentiles show up. Envy takes over. Envy takes over. Jealousy hits. Listen to me. Envy is a powerful emotion. Look at Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 4. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, which you all would agree. Those are sins that can control, that can dominate, they're brutal to be under. But look what it compares it to. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Envy is a powerful, dangerous emotion. Envy, the Bible tells us in Mark and Mark 15, Matthew, envy is why the religious leaders put Christ on the cross. Envy is why Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery. Envy is what started King Saul down a path to turn against God. Envy is what led the Jews, as we see in Acts chapter 5, to turn against the apostles. Think about this then. Think of all the different examples I just gave what envy leads to. Envy not just leads to sin. Envy actually leads you to hate good. I mean, think about it. Let, let's look at that in practical terms where it hits in our life and in our own hearts. At times we can be envious at those that find a measure of success. We almost want them to fall to a certain degree. Envy, that, that, that emotion of envy creeping up. We'd almost prefer that instead of rejoicing with them. Of another getting honor or praise and not ourselves. The reason is we simply have a wicked heart. Many times it's condemning to us when we see somebody else succeeding. The idea that they're doing better than us, we just can't handle. And envy begins to take over. You know, there's a great example of a person who avoided envy in the Bible. I mean, there's several, but one of my favorite examples that I think is just a clear case of it is Jonathan. Jonathan is King Saul's son. They all understood how a monarchy worked. When the king died, the son took over. Well, that son in line for the throne from King Saul was Jonathan. It was Jonathan. Yet Jonathan recognized that God's hand was on David, not him. Saul grew envious. He saw David's name elevated, the people cheering for him with what happened with Goliath, and then the wisdom this young man had in conquering the different armies, people uplifting him, and and, and he realized, man, they're going to want his king. 
And envy took over. Jonathan, though, not at all. It really was amazing. It's perhaps the most admired, and there's a lot to admire about Jonathan, but this is one of, one of the things I think I, I admire most about him. He was really, genuinely was, whatever the Creator wants is best. I'm good with it. If God's hand is on David, I see it. I can, he could actually see God using David. He didn't try and find all the faults with David. He understood why God chose him. But Saul was moved with envy. So think about this. Compare the life of Saul and Jonathan. Which man led a life of peace? Which man slept better at night? Was it the king in his great position? Or Jonathan, who would never become king because God's hand was not in it? It was Jonathan. You see, your peace in life and, 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 and how we go through this life is not based on some position you hold or the size of a bank account. It's based on that walk with God. And that's where Jonathan was. So we see here with the Jews, envy leads them to rage. Envy leads them to begin to contradict. Envy leads them to speak against Paul. So they start arguing. Paul begins to preach, but they're not going to allow it. They immediately begin to argue. They even try to discredit Paul and discredit what he's saying. They begin to cause a ruckus. The verb tense used here tells us it was continual. They weren't stopping. The Bible says they even began to blaspheme. This is just a wretched sin. This is the sin of speaking evil against God, evil against Christ. And that's what they're doing. Isn't it amazing? We see this by the word blasphemy here. It's true. When you ever have somebody who is more loyal to their religion or their politics, when, when they don't have a sound argument, what do they resort to? Attacking the person. Bitter words, hateful, because they have nothing to argue from. So it's happening here. They were envious of the crowds. And they could not stand the idea. Think of this. One of the things that was motivating there is they did not want to see all these Gentiles turn to Christ. They didn't. That's just the truth. Nope. Nope. Their prejudice was kicking in. And in doing so, now by their actions, they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about this. They came genuinely wanting to hear more. They did. Once they arrived, envy took over. They chose that over hearing more about the Messiah. I mean, they knew it was at stake here. They didn't understand what Paul was saying, but when they got there, all of a sudden, wait, wait a second, wait, we're losing our position, our influence. This is changing everything. We're not having it. And that's what they chose. They chose to reject Christ, follow their flesh, follow their envy, follow their position. We're not losing our influence. Really, if you ever look at the reasons why people reject the gospel, I don't think you will ever, ever find a person who says, you know, I rejected the gospel because 
You know, I, I researched it. I pursued it. I pursued the facts. You know, I put aside any, any dangerous presuppositions I might have had about it. I, I, I wanted just to know the truth. And I researched it, and I came to the conclusion it just wasn't true. I don't think that's possible. I don't. Well, there's a great example of that that comes to mind. Lee Strobel. He wrote the book, The Case for Christ. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Remember, he was an atheist. His, his, his wife came to know Christ. And he was so disappointed. like, no, no, no. He thought Christianity was just a crutch. It was for weak-minded people. The typical stuff that the media puts out about Christianity. That was all he knew of it. Just the liberal side, that was it. And he said, a couple of months into it, though, all he knew is his wife was different. That change in her was grabbing him. He's like, man, there's something to this. He said, he, he, he said in his book, he said, I didn't have a bad wife. I had a great wife before. But now, all of a sudden that she's a Christian, she's a better wife. She wasn't condemning him when she got home. You wretched heathen, you're going to burn in hell forever. It wasn't what she was doing. But by her conversation, the way she was living, the Lord was using that in his heart. Know what he said? He goes, all right, know what I'm going to do? He concluded wisely, I've only believed about this what I've been told. I'm going to research it for myself. I'm a researcher. I'm trained in it. I'm going to research it. Is there anything to this thing of Jesus Christ? And so he did. By the end of that year, he converted to Christianity. It's, it, it's never somebody rejecting Christ because they find fault with the facts that are present. That's not it. <clears throat> so they're attacking him. They don't back down. They don't back down at all. And look, he gets into the rejection or what's taking place with him. He speaks to them harshly. Let me read the verse. <clears throat> then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Paul hears their contradictions. Paul hears their conflict. Paul hears their words and their blasphemy. And, 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 and Paul speaks strong with great boldness. He speaks to their own condemnation. He gives them this frightening statement. You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Think about this statement. The word judge here does not mean that those men said of themselves, we're not worthy of eternal life. No, they believe they were worthy of eternal life. However, by their conduct, by their words, it did in fact condemn them. They have, in effect, and in truth, passed sentence upon themselves regarding their eternity. Let, let, let me explain this by an illustration. I'm going to read one source, and they had this illustration. I'm going to turn it a little bit. Let's say I, I, I take you, and we head out to, uh, let's say one of the world's greatest orchestras is going to be playing here in Anchorage. And they're going to be doing like Beethoven's Fifth, a masterpiece. And I take you to come listen to it. And the music is just played beautifully with power, with emotion. And you, I mean, you could feel it. 
One of the greatest masterpieces that has ever been produced. And when it's finished, you look at me and say, you know what? I just didn't care for it. I really prefer Alvin and the Chipmunks. What that person doesn't realize is this. The music wasn't on trial. You were. That music has already been judged through time as well as within the knowledge of music as a masterpiece. It's already judged. What you have done is judge yourself on how you do not know what music even is. That's what's happening here. By their own words and what they're saying about Christ and the blasphemy that they're speaking, the only thing they're doing is judging themselves is what Paul is saying. See, the fact is, you are the one who is on trial, not Jesus Christ. His trial is over with. He's already been proclaimed innocent. And what you do with Christ determines the verdict in your life. That's what's happened here. What you do with Christ determines the verdict. If you reject, guilty. If you come to Him in faith, you can be justified from all things and be found innocent. So we learn something here that's very important with a common argument that the world tries to give us within Christianity. That if a man dies and goes to hell, he goes there because he chose to go there. This is a truth, and don't forget it. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Just like with the Jews here who chose to reject. They came out of curiosity. They wanted to hear more. But when it began, they chose something else. They didn't put aside the and say, wait, let's just listen to them. Maybe God is in this. Look at the crowd that has gathered. No, no, no. No, no, no. They, they, were, they wanted to stay with their flesh. Many times somebody hears the gospel, they know it's convicting, they hear it, but all of a sudden their pride kicks in. What about this and what about this? I would lose my family, I would lose my friends. So they put things before the gospel. And what you do with Christ determines your verdict. You are judging yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Why? Because Christ is the only way. There is no other way. He is the only substitute where God placed upon Him the sins of the world. He is the sacrifice. He is the answer. You choose to go another way. No, you are slapping in the face of God, trampling underfoot the blood of His Son. He is the way. <clears throat> Paul then goes to the authority of the Scripture by quoting Isaiah 49.6. For, in verse 47, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation on the ends of the earth. He reminds them. He knew they are envious that the Gentiles, all these Gentiles, showing up their position, and Paul getting this audience, and they didn't want to see Gentiles be converted. He says, I remind you from the authority, from your own scriptures, that God Almighty, our Creator, our Father, of our nation, has said that this gospel should go to all people. And then we have the conclusion from 48 through 52. And the Gentiles heard this. They were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. They weren't blaspheming. 
and contradicting God's word. They were glorifying it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. So the first part of this before they throw Paul out is many of the Gentiles, they rejoice when they hear this. They rejoice that all that the Creator has done in order to save them. Put this together. Remember what he's been preaching. That this is how you can have forgiveness of all your sins. I mean, the Gentiles going to the, the wicked temples and knowing this just isn't right. This is just feeding our, our flesh. It's full of filth. They have a conscience, a God-given conscience, and they know this isn't the answer. They see the vanity in life, and now it's clicking with God's Spirit, just pricking their heart. This is the answer. And Paul say, no, it is for you. Boy, they rejoiced. And many turn to the Lord. And I need to cover a statement here briefly that we need understanding of. It says in verse 48, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. This is a common proof text for the doctrine of election in Calvinism. The you of the tulip. Unconditional election. They have several different proof texts that they use in order to support it. So the question is, does that statement teach the idea of unconditional election that God has already, He has already predetermined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? It in no way does that. And I'm going to show you that right here. It in no way demonstrates that. Number one, the word doesn't say preordained. The word is used eight times in Scripture. This particular Greek word that is used eight times in Scripture. It never implied, not one of the eight times, some divine decree along these lines. The definition of the word is key, as well as context is what is taking place, and then you have the understanding of it. The word ordain here carries the meaning to set, to determine. The ordaining here, remember what's taking place. Paul is showing the difference between the Jews who have rejected and the Gentiles who have accepted. The ordaining here is not of God. It's of the Gentiles who, once they heard it, what did they determine to do? To believe. It is the Gentiles that say, those who have, remember the word. The definition is to determine. What they're saying is they heard, just like when you heard the gospel, you had to make a conscious decision. I'm believing this. That's what they did. As compared to what? The Jews who made a conscious decision to what? Reject. What they did was they determined, I'm believing. That's what's taking place here in this verse. And so then the, world, the, the word travels throughout the entire region. But the Jews want Paul gone. Verse 50. But the Jews stirred up devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off their dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Ghost. Let me finish up here. So the Jews get some of the devout women that obviously had connections with women who had influence along with the rulers of the city. We're not sure if they were actually proselytes that had come in or just those women that, that were Judaism appealed to them because of the family sake and how it gave structure to the family and the idea against all, all, the, all the wicked temple worship, whatever. They had influence there. So they got them with rulers of the city to get Paul out. And it worked. By the way, it's interesting. If you, we're not going to do it for time's sake. I need to get through this. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul talks about uh, um, the persecutions that hit him during this time in Antioch of Pisidia. 
And then you get into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's listing things that have happened to him during his journeys. So it's very likely, even though it's not written here, based on 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that what they did here when they went after him, because they definitely went after him, they raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas. That this is where he was whipped and beaten with rods. And they kick him out. However, as is always the case, when the Lord closes one door, he opens another. They head to Iconium. When Paul and Barnabas get, when they leave Antioch of Pisidia, when they head out of town, they do a gesture that was common in Judaism. And that was they shook the dust off their feet. Remember how when, before Jews, when they were traveling Gentiles' land, they would not allow that dust to even come into their land. They would do that to their shoes. What Paul is doing here, he says, you are just like the heathen. That's what you are. So Paul heads to, uh, Paul heads to Iconium, and then we see the last verse. Isn't this incredible? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Those are those still in Antioch of Pisidia that converted. They're filled with joy. You would think maybe fear would take over, but they have joy. It's amazing how even in the midst of persecution and difficult times, we can still have the joy of the Lord. We can have joy during those tough times, during those stormy times, because of the greatness of our God. Our joy is in a person, it's not in a circumstance. If you're going through difficult times and, and, and you don't have the joy of the Lord, here's some things to remember. Think about this. Uh, the book of Joel, two, chapter 2, verse 25. The Lord can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Isn't that amazing? You think, all, all of a sudden, you're still breathing, you're still pulling in the air, but you can think of the years that I've wasted. Listen, you can still have joy in the Lord. He can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Isaiah 61.1. He can bind up the brokenhearted. Life of Joseph. He can make evil become a means of grace and life. Or, we see from the Bible, you may be broken by God now, but you know what? Eternity's coming. And it's really good. And it's really good. With heads bowed and eyes closed.